Let's get going, guys. Are you ready for God's word? Amen. Well, the Bible says a lot about Jesus. And this entire series, we're talking about the Jesus story. The Jesus story. It's an amazing story, isn't it? It is an absolute amazing story. And so I want you to, I want you to, I want to ask you and I want you to ask yourself, how well do you know your Savior King? Do you know him well? Do you, do you know that he was human? Say, yeah, the Nicene Creed. How many of you were raised under the Nicene Creed? How many of you came out of a more traditional liturgic background? You know, the Nicene Creed makes two assertions. We'll talk about them. And one of them is that Jesus was completely human. Those are the two main assertions he made, that, that Jesus was completely God and that Jesus was completely human. We have no problem with the completely God. Sometimes the completely God confuses the completely human too. How, what do I mean by that? We go, yeah, Jesus was human, kind of with a, with a wink and a nod. Like I would tell uh, Pat or, or Steve here, he was completely human, kind of like Mozart playing with the uh, elementary flute um, orchestra. You remember them little flutes they used to use? I mean, they were called recorders. Recorders. You remember the recorders? It's kind of like Mozart sitting in, you know, and just playing a, with, with, with those guys. Or how about Einstein dropping in to a third grade math test? You know, that's kind of how we see Jesus. He's human, but not completely like us. Well, what does the Bible say? And how does that way of thinking affect us? The truth is, did Jesus get sore after a workout? Were his body, did his, did his muscles produce lactic acid? Did his muscles, uh, uh, were they sore? Were they hurt? Were they fatigued? Did he, in, did he experience the same thing I'm experiencing? Because the last week, man, I've been tearing it up with my son Josh, my son Honey, and I have been working out again. I know you can already tell the difference. <laughs> Why do you think I wore the starch shirt to kind of fool you a little bit? Kind of makes it look a little bit more put together than it actually is. But I'm getting there, but I'm extremely sore. So if you see me kind of stretch it up here, it's because like everything hurts. Did he experience that? Say, no, pastor, he was always in shape. Oh, maybe so. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is when we say he was completely human, what does that mean? I want to share with you the title of today's message is Jesus, the most human human being. The most human human being. And what does that mean and why is that important to us? Well, let me share with you probably one of the most profound stories, one of them at least, in the entire New Testament is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus went out as usual, to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is the hill or the mountain next to the Temple Mount. From the Mount of Olives, you can actually see the Temple Mount. And so it's where Jesus had made it a custom to get away and pray. So this is not new. This is a usual thing. This is something that the disciples are totally familiar with. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, 
but your will be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, why would he be in need of strength if he wasn't human? If he was completely God and didn't take on our characteristics as human, then he wouldn't need strength because he would be stronger than the angel trying to strengthen him. But he's trying to highlight for us, not just trying, he's absolutely making a declaration that we need to be comfortable with and okay with that he was human. And we'll come to why that's so important. But he was human. He needed to be. Now watch this. And being in anguish. That's a very human term. Does God feel anguish? We feel anguish. What else does the Bible say about this? He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so now we have him needing to be strengthened so he was weak. He was weak in his physical body. That means he was tired. We see later on, read with me verse 45. When he arose from his prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Can I tell you, the week began to be more and more pointed. The week began to be more and more about him going to the cross. And as he got closer to the cross, the spiritual battle intensified. Not only that, the circumstances of the week began to grow and crescendo. And so they could feel the pressure. Do you believe Jesus could feel it? He's one of the boys. He's exactly like them. He needs to be strengthened. He's exhausted with them. He's exhausted. He's in anguish. What else? He's sweating? Or did you think the king of glory never sweat? I know, did you think his, or do you, are you one of those maybe that thinks his sweat smelled like lilies or roses? He smelled like any other guy. He was human. Now, this is important and we'll get to that, but, but before we get to that, I want to share with you that I'm fully aware that Satan works overtime to deceive and he deceives by means of distorting. And the creep of distortion has found its way into every facet of, of organized Christianity. Why? Because the last thing he wants is for you to truly relate to the real Jesus. And so I know the distortion is already coming in. The creep's coming in saying, I don't know, Pastor, you kind of sound a little blasphemous there. I don't know if I can deal with it. Just read the text. Read the text and see what it tells you about your Lord and your Savior. This is important. I know, I know that, that you would rather him float away back into the rafters of the church, take his place in the stained glass window. Jesus doesn't want to be on the stained glass window high above us. He wants to be with you. With you. He wants to be in you. We'll talk more about this. Stay with me on this. Read what it says. Exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up. Pray. For that you will not fall into temptation. Another, another gospel writer, he says, he emphasized that he did this three times. So most of the night had gone by and he was exhausted. He was sweating drops of blood. He's in anguish. If this is not true, this is the biggest farce in human history. 
If Jesus is faking it here, what does that mean? That's cruel to tell us that I get you. Meanwhile, he's faking it. He's not faking it. He's human. He's not faking it. He's human. He's completely sincere. When he says he's tired, he's tired. Why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because he wants you to know, I get you. I understand what you go through. Why? Because I came to this earth and I put myself in the exact same position that you put yourself in. Or that you find yourself in, I should say. Listen to what Luke 4.2 says. This is after and during his temptation in the wilderness. Luke 4.2 says, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, he was what? Hungry. To be hungry is to be human. How about Mark 11.12? After leaving Bethany, watch this. Jesus was Hungry. This is when he curses the fig tree because the fig tree looked like it had fruit, but didn't. Oh, we could get into all sorts of theological discussion on that. Well, the fig tree represent who? Represents the church, represents the, 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 the nation of Israel. I don't know. Of course, God would never curse the church or the nation of Israel, but maybe the fig tree represented what the world needed, and that's fruit for a hungry world. Amen. And yet, just be, they were, they looked, the fig tree looked like it had fruit, but had none. And yet he remained hungry. Stay with me on this. How about John 4, verse 4, where Jesus, the Bible says, had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a woman. A woman of ill repute. And listen to what the Bible says there. Verse 6, Jacob, he, he arrived at Jacob's well and Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down by the well and it was noon. The Bible says that they were hungry, so the disciples went to get something to eat. Jesus was tired. He asked the woman for something to drink. He was thirsty. In John 11, the Bible says Jesus wept. Why did he cry? Lazarus, his friend, had died, and when he viewed his two other friends, Mary and Martha, weeping and mourning and grieving for their brother, even though he knew he was going to resurrect him, he related to them because he was human and he felt their grief and he cried. Why is this important? Well, first of all, think about what the gospel is telling you. Yes, so many times we pick out those larger than life qualities and we say, oh, he was God, oh, but he was also human. That's what made it awesome. Anguish, tired, exhausted, sweating, hungry, thirsty, weeping. What does this tell us? I know that the poison of religion or religiosity tells us, no, this isn't right. He might have been human, but he's not human anymore, is he? 
He might have been able to relate once upon a time, but he doesn't relate anymore. Therefore, he's not the same. He's completely changed. He's back to being completely God and, and, and he has no more connection with our humanness. But what does the Bible teach us? Stay with me on this. About Jesus feeling deep sorrow. Matthew chapter 14 says, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest, and it pleased Herod very much. So much so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath to his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came, took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What do you think he did at that place? Just walk with me through it. If you, if you who are made in his image lost a dear friend and family member who was brutally executed to please the elites and you heard about it, what would you do? As you separated to a lonely place, to a place to be alone, would you cry? I believe Jesus wept. I believe Jesus mourned. I believe Jesus experienced what we experience when we suffer loss. Do you see why this is so important? Because the enemy would try to convince you he doesn't get you. Because isn't that the, the condition of being human to be misunderstood? Come on, how many of you feel like you've lived your whole life with people who are all around you and yet you're completely unnoticed at times? Or how many times do you feel like you have family and you have people all around you and yet they just don't get you? How many of you live in a world where no one truly understands you? And Jesus says, hey, me too. I know what it's like to live in that same world. I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like to feel what you feel. Why? Because he wants you to be able to count on him, trust him, talk to him, and be a... F oh, come on now. Come on. Come on, how many times has the enemy tried to dupe you into saying, well, Lord, you just don't get it. Or God, you've never been through what I've been through. Or you know what, God, you just, I just don't feel like you can really, really, yes, you died on the cross, but if I were you, I could have. Or if I had what you had. That's where that poison wants to get you. That's where the poison wants to wants to do in you instead of understanding yes you were God but you also were completely human so that so that I could see how awesome it was to live out humanity just oh come on let, let, let's get back to this 
So he's mourning John the Baptist. How about in 1 John, or not 1 John, but John 1, 14. The first chapter of John, verse 14. The word became flesh. Notice what the Lord is highlighting there. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Notice what he's highlighting there. Completely human and yet God. We tend to get the God part. We forget the human part. Why did he become human? Listen to what Hebrews says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, Satan himself. And so he did it to set us free. So going back to the council of Nicaea who set up the Nicene Creed, where we get the Nicene Creed from, you have... You have two basic assertions. One is that he is in fact God. But the second is just as important. That he was in fact human. And as wonderful a benefit of his humanity is that we as humans, can be saved. We can be saved because of his humanity. Listen to what Philippians says. Philippians says exactly what Hebrews said. Hebrews said, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, what shared in in their humanity, became flesh and blood so that he could experience death, a death that would ultimately defeat Satan and set his people free. This is how awesome I think of this. He took no shortcuts. He went all the way. He didn't just say, I want to experience being tired. I want to experience being exhausted. I want to experience being hungry. I want to experience being all of those things, but stop at death. Death is now. No, death is the ultimate of what it means to be human. And he said, no, I'm going to do this all the way. And I'm going to show them that I can go through death and in death, I will conquer death. And by my conquering of death, they will also conquer death and have life. And it cannot be any other way. And this is a beautiful thing that he did. Listen to the way the the message puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. Can you see what's happening? He set aside his throne, his robe, his ring, whatever it is. But most of all, most of all, he set aside what it meant to be completely god And not human. So he stayed completely God. But he took on all the attributes of humanity. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Read it with me. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. 
He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death, crucifixion. The privilege he set aside is that God cannot die, and yet he allowed himself to die. Why? Because of his love for us. And so I want to talk to you very quickly about how this, this, um, this creepy, seductive distortion comes in. And you see it everywhere, but a lot of times we, I mean, how many times do you see in artwork, in films, in paintings, and, and whatnot, Jesus depicted completely wrong? I mean, say this, come on, hang in here with me. How many times have you seen Jesus like, here's an easy one, like blonde? The chances of him being blonde were like slim to none. He's Jewish, Middle Eastern. He's probably more dark-headed, maybe brown hair, dark-haired. And and he's definitely not pasty white. He, He spent most of his time in the sun, Or how about they see him kind of just wandering through like a young college kid home from college. Or you kind of make him look like that that, that checkout guy at Whole Foods. (laughs) You know? And then they, they just, they don't make him rough and rugged and tough. But yet when I read the scripture, he was a carpenter. What's the last time you saw carpenter's hands the way those guys' hands look? I mean... You know, and he worked in the sun and he traveled. And how about that crazy white robe they put him in? Pristine, snowy, flowing white. For crying out loud, he lived in the Middle East and he walked in dirt and dust and grime. And you know what else moved along those roads? Animals. And what do they leave behind? And so he lived in our world. Why? Why would he go through all that trouble if he just wanted this this poisonous religiosity to put him back in heaven so we couldn't see him and understand him? And and most of all, believe that he didn't understand us. Yes, he was God. But he also knows what it's like to be you. So that when you pray, you can say, man, you get me, Lord. You get me, God. Think about this with me for a second. One of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton. And in his book on, on the man called Christ, that first chapter, he concludes it this way. As the strange kings fade into a far country and the and the mountains resound no more with the feet of the shepherds, and only the night and the cavern lie in fold upon fold over something more human than humanity. Meaning all the fanfare is gone, the kings are gone, the shepherds are gone, the the angels aren't singing anymore, and it's that quiet time when it's just... Joseph and Mary, and they look down in that manger and they see something soft and fragile. A newborn baby that is perfectly human. Perfectly human. See, humanity and us, we've been marred by what? 
failures and hurts and abuses and a thousand addictions. But Jesus knows what it's like to be perfectly human. To feel hurt in the perfect way. But completely human. To feel sadness. Come on, sometimes we're sad, but we're more like, I'm sad for me. Or I'm sad that I got caught. Right? No, when Jesus feels sad, it's sincere. Perfect human emotion. You say, but I'm not sure, Pastor. Well, let me, let me tell you this. Let me ask you this. What was his favorite title to use? Son of Man. Why? Because he wanted to relate to you so much that he came to this earth for you. He loves you. Jesus longs, he weeps, he laughs, he celebrates, and that is completely exhilarating to me because I get him and he gets me. See, too much heaven stuff pushes Jesus away and makes him untouchable. But Jesus always wanted to be touched. And now what he tells his disciples, come, touch, see that it is me. He's saying the same thing to you and I. Come, touch me. Connect with my humanity because I sure did with yours. I sure did with yours. I want you to know me. Listen to what Matthew says. In Matthew 9, verse 30, Jesus warned them sternly. What is he talking about here? So he's just healed two blind men. He's miraculously healed him. And then he warns them sternly. See that no one knows. Don't go tell anyone. Now, you might be thinking, this is some kind of reverse psychology. Isn't that the way it works? You tell them that and they do the exact opposite, right? How many of you have tried reverse psychology with your kids? Sometimes it works, but, but, but I don't think this is it. We find the same example in other places. How about Mark 1, verse 43? Jesus heals a leper and he, and he warns him strongly. Don't tell anyone. Just go do what's required by the law and get back into the society, but don't give me any credit. Why would he do that? Maybe because Jesus was human. Mark tells us in just a couple of verses later, Mark tells us what his motivation was. Instead, the leper went out and began to talk freely. He couldn't shut up. He started telling everybody. He was a walking billboard. He was a walking announcement like just yelling out, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. And as the news spread, watch this. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter the town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. What is the Bible highlighting? Jesus loved people. He didn't want to be lonely. Who does? If you're human, you don't want to be lonely. Jesus enjoyed people. He desired to be in a community, in fellowship. But he also knew what it was like to be misunderstood. So check it out. He's about to be crucified and he tells his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. Megan, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back for you so that you may be where I am. Why? Because he loves people. He loves family. So he says, Josh, 
don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place. You're going to be where I am. And then Philip, one of the disciples, what does he say to Jesus? It's right up here. Lord, show us the Father that, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, do you not know me, Philip? Come on, how many of you have ever been there? Where you've known people forever and yet they still don't get you. You know, I had an experience like this just yesterday with my daughter. So we're on the, on the trail and I'm getting more and more excited and she's getting tired, <laughs> you know. And I put my arm around her and I'm hugging her and I'm talking to her and, and we're having this awesome conversation. And then she goes, Dad, you don't get me. You just don't listen. And I, of course I listen. You said this and therefore that right? And, and, and that's the dad's way of going about it. But she's like, you just don't get me. And I'm like, you've been my daughter for 15 years. She's like, exactly. Exactly. You can see that same sentiment in Jesus when he's telling his disciples, you still don't get me. I've been with you how long and you still don't see me. He understands you. And maybe he Put himself in this position so that when you say nobody gets me, Jesus says, I get you. I get you perfectly, sincerely. Let's talk. Tell me your problem. Tell me what it's about for you. Okay, so this is where we finish. He gets misunderstood. He gets exhausted, tired, hungry, all of the things. He gets exacerbation or exacerbated where he's he is frustrated with people he's exasperated I should say I miss I said the word earlier in that he is frustrated with the generation that's human to be frustrated can you be frustrated and not sin Bible says, in your anger, don't sin. And so he's frustrated with the generation that doesn't get him. He says things like, man, how long will I be with you and still not understand? You know, I love it. One more last one that I keep, I'm just going to keep sharing with you the Bible so that now when you read it, you see his humanness come out. How about when he, when he encounters the centurion that says, Lord, I know what it's like to be under authority. I know what it's like to be in authority, you don't have to come to my house with a word. It shall be done because I know you're a man of authority. And Jesus is amazed. He's amazed. He's like, what? I tell you the truth. In all of Israel, I have not found a man with as much faith as him. You say, but, but, but that word amazed, it doesn't have the same amazement as he would use it with us. Oh, yeah? In the very same chapter, go down a few verses, uh, Matthew uses the same word to describe the disciples' reaction when they're amazed when he, what, calms the sea. Why am I telling you guys all of this? I'm telling you all of this so that you will know that your Savior King loves you enough to become human, to put aside, to put aside all of his privileges, to become human so that you might have relationship with him. That you might have a real best friend relationship with him. So this is where we finish. In the Old Testament, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. And he says, hey, Moses, 
I'm here and my glory, I've placed the expression of my glory upon this mountain and this bush. So I need you to take your shoes off. He takes his shoes off and of course he gets instruction. Go let my people go. The people of Israel are now free and they're going through the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. And God says, now I'm not just dealing with one man. I'm dealing with an entire community. Scholars say there's about a million people, okay? A million people. So God says, I'm not going to do one bush. I want them to experience what Moses experienced in the representation of my glory. And so he sets the mountain on fire. It shakes and he begins to speak. How many of you think that is awesome? Yeah, Lord, do it. Not what happens. They get scared. They run back into their camps. They don't like the, they, they, they're not happy. They tell Moses, Moses, you talk to God. Let God talk to you. We don't like this. And then you tell us what God said. Can I tell you, in many ways, we do the same thing when we put Jesus way up in heaven and forget his humanity. What we're saying is, Lord, you stay up in heaven. It's too intimidating having a relationship with you. So stay up in heaven. Tell Pastor Chris and Pastor Chris, tell us. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You're called to have your own relationship with Jesus. So God says, you know what? I get the fact that if I come, if I show you who I am in all of my awesomeness, I am going to freak you out. I'll never forget this message, message I shared because it's the message where my son and my daughter, Evelyn, accepted the Lord on one Christmas Eve service when I said, imagine you trying to have a relationship with ants. And you, and you got down and you tried to explain to those little ants you loved them. What would those ants do? They would freak out. But what if you became an ant? What if you gave up all your privileges and you gave up your home and you became an ant in the dirt with them to share with them how much you love them. That's what Jesus did. And yes, he's glorious and yes, he's God. But don't you ever forget, he's human. So much so that when he resurrected from the dead, he ate with his disciples, not once, more than once, trying to cement in their mind. I was human when I walked with you. I was human when I died. I'm human when I resurrected. And my, my nature has not changed. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. We can get into all kinds of theological debates. You debate it. You debate it. I don't want to debate it. To me, what he's saying is, my nature has not changed. I love you still from your side. 
Someone has said, you cannot love someone until you love them from their side. Right? Jesus is saying, I love you from your side still. Think about it. He resurrected. He ate with his disciples on the beach. The guys that were on their way to Emmaus, on the Emmaus road, he shows up to them, then he shows up again, and he says, yep, it happened just like, I, like y'all are talking about. And they're like, ah, it's a ghost again. It's Jesus' ghost. It's a phantom. It's this, it's that. No, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Why would he go through that? Same reason I've been preaching this message. Because he loves you from your side. And he loves you with all his heart. Won't you love him back? So this is my invitation today. Say, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me. Thank you, Lord, for allowing your blood to be shed for me. As I partake and as we partake, Lord, we do celebrate you coming to this earth. The Word becoming flesh. The Son of God becoming flesh. Even to the point you didn't shortcut it, Lord. You died on the cross. And then you conquered death. And because of that, Lord, you give us all, all that you came to give us. And we give you all of us in return. See, it's a holy exchange. He came to do a holy exchange. Lord, right here, right now, let this be the sign of our holy exchange with you. In Jesus' name. I love you, church. Have a great, great week. <laughs>